This episode is sponsored by Kendo UI. Kendo UI allows you to build better apps faster. They have a comprehensive library ranging from data grids and charts to buttons and sliders. Plus, you can use their components as plain JavaScript as well as in Angular, React, and Vue. They have a large collection of customizable popular themes like Bootstrap and Material. Go check them out at javascriptjabber.com slash kendoui. Hello, everybody, and welcome to JavaScript Jabber. Today on our panel, we have AJ O'Neill. Yo, 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 coming at you live from sunny Provo. Amy Knight. Hello from Nashville. And I'm Joe Eames. I'm your host today. And as our very special guest, we have Tom Dale. And I am coming at you from Sunny Vale. Uh, I myself am particularly excited to have Tom Dale on. He is one of my favorite personalities in the community. Uh, ever since I saw Tom, who, when he was a big wig at Ember, uh, come all the way out to Utah to speak at some little podunk com- conference. And I thought that was just the coolest freaking thing in the whole entire world. We, weren't, we didn't even have budget to cover his travel and expenses. And he still came. And I thought that was pretty awesome. And that then to top time. it off... Yeah, it was it was really fun. That's been a great conference every year. But to top it off, you delivered this amazing keynote spe- uh, talk that I just was oh, yeah. really, really impressed by. I remember that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You talked yeah. about the gap, the difference, how the amazing part in a partnership is in the small gaps in between you. If you're oh. if you're too different, you can't get work done. But if you're the same, then nothing magic gets done. And you talked about um, the getting the magic done when you and somebody that's that's a little bit different from you with wow. different ideas. And this, it's like, this is a talk about diversity before diversity yeah. was a word that we used every other word. Well, that's, right? that's so wise, especially because I was, I think I was like 25. <laughs> <laughs> Again, I, yeah. thought, oh, I, I forgot about that. So that's right. Yeah. And you know what? Also, uh, I remember at that conference, Ryan Florence gave a talk about how JavaScript apps were broken and how you should be using a good router. Mm-hmm. And this is back in the day, but he was talking about the Ember router. This is the pre, uh, pre, right. pre React router. So yep. it was kind of the formative years. Yeah, that was right. that was a great talk. I wonder I, what framework he's going to write a router for next. <laughs> <laughs> the Svelte router. The that's not uh, a bad idea. Yeah, what's the what's the one that uh, DHH and Thirty Seven Signals just put out? It's got a funny name. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm blanking on a router for them too. Yeah. All right. Well, today we're going to be talking about primarily Ember 3.0. But before we dig into that, I think we have a couple of questions directed specifically at Tom. I think we're going to start with the tie and the suit today. Nobody can see, but Tom is wearing a tie and a suit. So I'm wearing a tie and a suit. And let me tell you why. Programmers, Silicon Valley in general, are known for being rule breakers, right? So there's this trope of the software developer being at this Fortune 500 company and everyone's in suit and tie except for the programmer who's wearing a sweatshirt, you know, a hoodie and flip-flops. And unfortunately, uh, now I work in the Valley and the programmers have taken over. Now the, the, the hoodie and the flip-flops are the uniform. So in order to continue the tradition of programmers as punk rock iconoclasts who are breaking norms, the only thing left for you to do is to dress up back again in a suit and tie. And it's so funny, actually, uh, because you really like uh, you, <laughs> you see awesome. you see how people treat non-programmers. And like, you know, like we have so much privilege in, in our work environments, generally speaking, like programmers that really have so much power. And I can't tell you how many experiences I've had where 
people thought I was like a banker or something. They just treat you like trash because they think you're like a business person. Well, it's not, I don't, yeah. Like, like a salesperson, right? like, they're just yeah. like, like non-tax. So they'll just assume, <laughs> right? They'll just assume, or they'll use like really like high level, like somewhat patronizing language to describe something to me. And then I reply with like my full blown, like computer science answer. That's awesome. Kind of like, Whoa, what just happened? <laughs> Yeah, it's it's fun to kind of have you know have people underestimate you. I think that's pretty cool. I might try out your methods. I I know. Well, I mean, as like a girl, I kind of can already do this pretty easily. But (laughs) (laughs) yeah, I just like perpetuate it by getting super dressed up and wearing just not my normal t shirt. (laughs) (laughs) That's pretty awesome. It's usually like, whose girlfriend are you? I'm like, hmm, nobody's. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yep. So I, when yep. you say that, say it really sad and depressed. No. Oh, I didn't mean like that. I just was like, <laughs> nobody's. Like, yep. I'm here for yep. me. Yep. Anyway. So, I, so here's a recommendation for men. Like, if you if you dress up with, in a suit and tie like a banker, you're going to get the experience that a lot of women have in the industry, which is like, oh, uh, are you in marketing? <laughs> right? Or something <laughs> yeah, like that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's actually that's, that's crazy interesting. That's like a social experiment in in the in the works. Somebody should write and publish something about that. That's pretty pretty cool. I will say this. I've said it before on the podcast. Like I don't want to get too far into the weeds here, but when I first got into programming, one of my mentors was like, "If you want to be taken seriously, you need to get a bunch of nerdy t-shirts and wear them everywhere." Oh, so. really? Um <laughs> You know, my wife's yeah. a software engineer and she dresses to the nines like she's I love it. I love it. Tracy Lee yeah. Tracy Lee has encouraged me to do that and yeah, it's good stuff. Anyways. Yeah. I hear a lot of that, that pressure to not to play video games, play Dungeons and Dragons, to adopt all even the outside interests so that you can fit in. There's there's a lot of that, a lot more of that than what people may realize, especially when you are in the majority. I'm a white male who plays video games and Dungeons and Dragons, so yeah, you fit the stereotype. I don't oh, think cool. I could be farther away from the stereotype, except for if I, I since I don't live in Silicon Valley, I guess I'm a little bit outside of it. I, I don't I don't ride one of those uh, one wheeled skateboards that, with the motor. Oh, I haven't been on one of those yet. Oh, they look so cool. I want one, but there's no reason. I like they wouldn't even get me to the gas station here where I live. It's so many, so far away. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah, let's talk about Ember. Is, do we have any more questions specifically for Tom um, before we move on? I think we, I think it should be good. Would, would be good to actually just get, catch up on Tom. Where you at? What are you doing nowadays? Yeah. Before we move yeah. on to Ember. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I am a principal staff engineer at at LinkedIn. And I work on a team called Presentation Infrastructure. So we build out infrastructure, as you might guess, uh, does what the name says on the tin, for our, our presentation layer on the web. So uh, we build out, um, you know, not like we work on, on Ember the, as a JavaScript framework, but we also work on integrating it here into LinkedIn's uh, existing Java infrastructure we work on stuff on top of Ember, like the UI components and uh, stuff like uh, internationalization, accessibility, and so on. Uh, so that's my team. And uh, we're kind of in this customer service role where LinkedIn has a, a, a ton of different business lines. Um, and almost all of them are Ember apps, including LinkedIn.com, like the main LinkedIn experience. So we're kind of coordinating and making sure people are successful building these products and that we are as improvements to the web platform land and the web environment changes, we have a way to 
roll those improvements out to the entire company in a reasonable amount of time and not ask everyone to rewrite their, their line of business that generates billions of dollars in revenue. And how's that going? Uh, I mean, it's going really well. It's awesome. LinkedIn is such a, a fantastic company to work for. I, I really appreciate the, the culture here. Uh, previously, I thought that I, I didn't like working at big companies because uh, I worked at Apple when I was younger in my, in my early 20s. Uh, but I realize now that I I just <laughs> I didn't have the maturity or the skills to collaborate in an, an environment this complex with this many teams and this many different stakeholders. So it, it's been a real learning experience for me. There are skills I've had to develop, and I still have a ton left to learn. And of course, doing anything at this scale, there are always going to be engineering challenges because you're always trying to push the envelope. Um, but generally speaking, I think I'm I'm struggling to think of of another company of our scale that has this many, this much JavaScript and this many single page apps all in production and all um, serving so many customers. Hmm. That's awesome. A good friend of mine uh, left Pluralsight a couple of years ago and went to work at LinkedIn uh, here in Utah, Megan Russell. Oh, okay. Yeah. I don't, I don't think I know Megan. Is she still with LinkedIn? Uh, yeah, I believe so. She does nothing but talks highly about working for LinkedIn. Yeah, it's the work-life balance is awesome. And the thing that I really appreciate is we have such a collaborative culture here. Um, I think at a certain size, it's really easy for companies to tend towards like territorialism and, you know, you get in these kind of political battles, but I, it's, it's been like, I've had to tone it down a little bit, you know what I mean? Cause I'm coming from the open source world where it's, you know, things, it's, it's, you know, it's Twitter and, and things like that. Things can get a little bit combative. And I think it's, you know, it's in good faith and everyone means well, but things can get a little bit, you know, tense. Um, and so I, I think I've had to turn, tone it down a little bit. Like, hey, the norm here is everyone's always looking out for the other person's success, um, hmm. which, which is which has been just, it's, it's so refreshing to work in that environment. Yeah, we had an interesting chat with um, Kent Beck about the idea of companies where the performance is far, you know, doing something to eke out a little bit more performance was more important than asking, is this the right thing to do? Mm-hmm. Right. And, yep. um, yeah, it's a hard thing to do with business. All right. So let's move on to actually talking about Ember, Ember 3.0. That's the topic of today. So has it, re- is it released? Is it going to release? When is it going to release? What's the status of it? What's amazing about it? That's a, that's a big question. We'll give you 20 minutes ready. So. <laughs> you got it. Well, actually, I, I think I need one minute for that. Uh, so Ember 3.0 came out uh, a couple months ago. And the banner new feature in Ember 3.0 is that there is uh, literally nothing new. <laughs> awesome. Uh, which I is... Really which is like that. That kind which of is, answers one of the questions I was going to ask. Is it really uh, Ember 3.0? <laughs> it, it's... Right. it's it's not. And I, I think, so I think we've cracked a really interesting nut in terms of how you develop software in the open source world that has this kind of longevity. Because if you think about, about Ember, Ember's never been the number one framework by, by Mindshare by a long shot, but it's always around, right? It's almost like, right. uh, it's almost like this like bug that just won't die, right? Like even all the way back, like think about 2010, 2011, when, when we launched Ember, uh, like the major competition was Backbone. Backbone was like the hot new thing. And there wasn't really NPM. There wasn't Bower. There wasn't React. I, like Angular was around, but not really at the level. Nobody, where nobody knew about it. Right, exactly. Uh, it was a completely different world. We, we couldn't even use ES5 because ES5 was the hot new thing. 
right? And and we were and we <laughs> still supported ES, IE6. ES3. Uh, we, yeah, all we had was ES3, right? We had almost nothing, and we had to, in a lot of ways, build the universe that we that we wanted. We we saw in our head where we, we wanted things to go, but none of it existed. So we had to kind of help build it. That was a um, day when the word evergreen only meant trees, right? Yeah, yeah. The term evergreen <laughs> didn't even exist. All this stuff. I mean, even isomorphic didn't exist other than in mathematics. Uh, <laughs> so um, the fact that we wrote something a frame, a JavaScript framework in that environment. And not only are we still around, but we're thriving, you know, like the Ember community has never been more vibrant, more work has never been, been happening in it. Um, and there are apps from that era, from like the Ember 1.0 era that are still around today. And they're on the latest Ember three. That's in my opinion, like completely mind blowing. Um, and, and I think, I think hopefully that message resonates with people, especially in the JavaScript community, where we do have a tendency towards disposable software. And ah, it doesn't really matter because we're just going to rewrite it in a year anyway. Um, I, I don't think that's great from a business perspective um, or from a, from a user perspective. I think that's great from a, a programmer perspective, but that's not who we should be optimizing for. Wait, hold on. Um, You're optimizing <laughs> for people to actually succeed at their business and their application <laughs> be valuable? Right, and yeah. Silicon Valley? Yeah, right. Weird, right? Yeah, weird. I know. I know. It's kind of like a weird, it's a, it's a weird philosophy to have. Um, but I, I just like for us, that's the most important thing is, is not, is not constantly uh, changing things up in the hope that it might be a silver bullet that solves all your problems. It's more about steady iteration towards, you know, improvements to the platform. But at the end of the day, being mindful, hey, like we have users and we have and they want new features too, right? Like they don't care that you rewrote the app. They want new features. We have businesses who can't afford to hire a million developers to be constantly rewriting everything every, every you know, two years or whatever it is. Um, so, so the model that we have is, is basically this. Instead of saying, okay, you need to upgrade to Ember 3.0 to get all these amazing new features, right? To kind of use the, the carrot model where we incentivize people to upgrade by offering them a carrot. Um, instead, we land all of the features that we think are important in a backwards compatible way. And then maybe while we do that, we deprecate some of the features we don't want to support anymore because uh, we don't think they're good from a programming model perspective or they're not as fast or whatever. And then so Ember 3.0 is like, okay, all that good, awesome new stuff, you already got it. If you're on Ember 2X, you already got it. So Ember 3.0 is just taking all those features, taking that code base and just stripping out all the deprecated stuff. So if you're on the last version of Ember 2, and you don't have any deprecation warnings, you just upgrade to Ember 3, and it's the same thing, just smaller and faster. Hmm, interesting. That's quite a bit different than how other frameworks handle their stuff. Uh, it is, yes. Thank you for noticing. <laughs> <laughs> you're seeing a, I assume you're seeing a lot of success uh, out of that model. Yeah, I mean, if you, if you look at our adoption rates, we, we, every year, right before EmberConf, uh, we do this Ember community survey um, and we ask people, what version of Ember are you on? And our adoption rates are incredible. You know, it, it, looks, it looks more like the iOS upgrade uh, rate than the Android update rate. We'll say that. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure. And, and we, we do a lot of work. It takes a long time, right? I, I think the thing is, it's, it's really easy to be dinged and say, you know, like you guys are behind and it doesn't feel as modern or whatever. Um, but ultimately, we... Ember is about its community. It's not really the code. And part of the of community means making sure people can come with you into the future. Um, I think I think Python 3 is 
kind of the standard example people use, where when you don't think about backwards compatibility, you have this huge bifurcation in the ecosystem. Uh, and I think that's maybe true of Angular 1 and 2 to some degree, although certainly not to the extent of, of Python 3. Um, but for us, making sure people have a path and investing, investing in the backwards compatibility and then investing in the, the tools and the documentation people need, investing in things like code mods to automate the upgrade as much as possible, uh, those are things that, that our community values very highly. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like it's really valuable from a business perspective. And so my comment, what I'm going to say is, you know, some people might like it, some people may not. So, you know, whatever. One thing I do love about the Ember community, I have a couple of friends in it and you guys are really, really, really friendly to newbies, I think. Well, thank you. And yeah, I don't know. Just everybody I've talked to says great things and I've heard great things about it. But one thing like I always like to ask, um, if I am a newer developer and I'm, you know, deciding which framework to work, to learn, um, how much Ember am I going to have to learn versus how much JavaScript? If like, say, maybe not even a new developer, but somebody new to JavaScript, because some people may or may not like that. Like maybe somebody hates JavaScript and they want to use Ember because it abstracts away as much JavaScript as possible and I don't have to learn that much JavaScript. But let's say I want to, I do want to learn JavaScript. Like is Ember going to help me do that as well or is the opinions going to maybe keep me from learning as much JavaScript as I want? Yeah, yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah, so I think um, I think this is a, a, a signal that we can we send sometimes where... So going back to the fact that Ember's been around for a long time. Like I said, when we got started, we only had ES3 to work with. We didn't even yet have ES5. We, like most frameworks of that era, built our own object model and API around that. So uh, there were no classes in JavaScript. So you have this like ember.object base class. And if you want to create a subclass, you have to do ember.object.extend. And if you want to create an instance, you have to do .create. And so it's kind of this like weird... Uh, Ember API that people take one look at it and they think that knowledge is not portable. I learned this, like, yeah. the point you were making, like it's not going to help me learn JavaScript. I'm learning this weird like Ember dialect. Or, or um, even like the, the NPM ecosystem. Like if I use Ember CLI, it abstracts away like, you know, NPM scripts and stuff like that. So I see. Uh, uh, so Ember CLI integrates pretty tightly into the NPM e ecosystem, I, I would say, um, and is is more similar to to like create React app or something, I think, in 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 that sense where it's, it's Ember CLI is definitely part of that ecosystem um, now. Uh, but so, so regards to things like classes, we knew that these tools were very important for people to have, but we also recognized, hey, it's not good that we have our own system for doing this. Angular has their own system for doing this. Backbone has their own system for doing this. So uh, a, a big part of what uh, Yehuda Katz did, who's you know co-creator co of Ember is engage with standards bodies like TC39, because you have to remember back in the day, there were no JavaScript practitioners on these standards bodies. It was all browser vendors talking to browser vendors, and they, they didn't really have a deep understanding of what it meant to build big apps on the web in JavaScript. Are there uh, any were... JavaScript practitioners on the committee now? Because I thought it was just Ruby and oh, yeah. guys. Oh, no, 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 no. There's a ton of <laughs> practitioners. Yeah, a ton of practitioners. Yeah, ton of, maybe too many. I don't know. <laughs> oh, because I mean, like every new version of whatever JavaScript is just taking something from Ruby or C Sharp, it seems. <laughs> Ruby and C Sharp are so great. You know, don't you like it? 
But in fact, the next version of uh, the next no, uh, 2019 is just Ruby. I believe you. Copy script 2.1. See, the years, I know you're not, I know, I know that's not true because Yehuda had a blocks proposal uh, for adding like Ruby style blocks to JavaScript that was not taken up by the committee. So there you go. Yeah. AJ uh, so, is definitely an opinionated person who does. <laughs> yeah, I guess. So, so yes. So like getting us back on track, like how much of the Ember API will I have to learn versus how much just regular JavaScript can sure. I use? Okay. Yeah. Sorry for rambling. Uh, no, so no, no, no worries. I'm just trying to keep it up. <laughs> to answer your question, we went to C39 and we said, we really need things like classes and we really need things like decorators because these are powerful tools, but we can't express them in JavaScript today. And we want these to be shared with everyone. So we worked on those standards. Um, and now in Ember 3, you, can, you don't need to use uh, Ember objects. You can just use regular JavaScript classes. Uh, we have a, an NPM package you can install that lets you use decorators instead of uh, the previous syntax we were using before. Um, so I think if people take a look at Ember today with native JavaScript classes and decorators, it doesn't feel like this foreign API with a ton of stuff to learn. It feels like, oh, these are this is, these are the JavaScript features I'm already aware of and know. Uh, and if I invest in learning them in Ember, that knowledge is portable even if I use something else down the road. Awesome. I like that. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. So from that perspective, it sounds like it's even in some ways a little close to the um, structure of Angular and uh, even a little bit reactive view. Is that that be fair to say? Classes? Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I think so. And I think that's one of the things that, that kind of hurt us is that if you look at, at a, a framework that has been written from scratch, you know, relatively recently where they, they weren't starting from ES3, they got to start from ES6, let's say. Uh, it just, that felt a lot more modern than this weird old thing. And, um, and, I, and I think that harmed us. But now I, I think if you look at most modern JavaScript frameworks, there's definitely like a similarity to them, right? right? Especially as they adopt classes and decorators. Yes. So, so in that sense, like there's just this like modern dialect of JavaScript that we didn't have before. And now, and now it's kind of table stakes for any JavaScript framework. So that brings up an interesting question. Um, Ember and uh, is really the last of the old guard uh, from the days of 2011, 2012, right? Mm -hmm. uh, even though React was invented sometime around that time, it was definitely invented in this uh, new methodology, right? So Angular, they, were, they had Angular 1, uh, AngularJS, and said, oh, we've got all this, these old models and old ways of looking at things and doing things. And their solution was to write an entirely brand new, completely 100% different framework and just call it version 2, 
Yeah. Even though it was as version two as, uh, well, it wasn't at all version two. It was yep. a new thing, right? Yep. And you, Ember chose not to do that. So have you felt like, what have been the advantages and disadvantages of not trying to just scrap all of that old stuff that people right. are getting away from? Yeah, well, the, I think the gradually the advantage of doing this kind of incremental approach is we get to take the community with us. Um, and I, I think... Uh, Definitely something the Angular team has struggled with. Yeah, yeah. And, and I like to the Angular team's credit, I think they got the message loud and clear and have done a lot of awesome work to smooth that migration. But ultimately, um, and I think this is kind of to your point, Angular 1 and Angular 2 are different beasts, yep. right? Like Angular 1, it's philosophy about the world is much, much different than, than Angular 2. Angular 2 is much more like, how can we build enterprise-grade applications, right? To, to me, when I look at Angular 2, it, it's got uh, kind of like a, like a Java flavor to it. And I say that as a Java fan, that's not a thing. I'm, we're a big Java shop here. I have a tremendous amount of respect for Java and I, I see the value of it. Uh, but just that kind of like enterprise scale, we're designed to work you know, at, at massive enterprise scale. Um, so for us, as we've evolved the framework, I think we were pretty happy with the overall model. Uh, we we're pretty happy with the overall programming model, pretty, over, pretty happy with the overall scope of the framework. And it was more about refining those existing pieces in terms of the new technology, things like classes and decorators. Um, so in that sense, I think it, it was the obvious thing to do. Uh, and I also have to say, like, we, we made the opposite. We made the same mistake in the opposite direction with Sprout Core. I don't know if you remember it. This is like going deep JavaScript ancient history, aka like 2010. But, I remember uh, it. <laughs> I played. I played with it. I never actually installed Ember, but I did install Sprout Core. Oh, oh really? No, I know what you guys are talking about. <laughs> oh, interesting. Three lesson for those that are listening that don't. Uh, yeah. Oh man. So Sprout Core was like the like one of the first single page app frameworks, although we didn't call them that at the time. Um, and this this is the framework that powers like the online iCloud.com web apps. Um, and those, so I, I was on the team at MobileMe. I was like, I was like 23. I did not know JavaScript. They really should not have hired me. Somehow I conned my way through an interview and got hired. And basically that's the story of my career. Right place, right time, baby. Just like <laughs> write it for all it's worth. Uh, but that those, those were like the first like truly big single page apps deployed by Apple in 2008 um, before this model, this architecture was popular at all. In fact, it was highly controversial. Uh, and SproutCore's whole thing was Let's take the, the API from Coco, the Objective-C like Mac framework, and port it as literally as possible to JavaScript. And we're going to abstract away HTML. We're going to abstract away CSS. It, you're writing an app like you'd write a Mac app. And uh, I mean, it was actually, it was pretty cool in a lot of ways, but adoption was tough. Working with it was tough. Um, so we did Sproutcore 2.0, which was kind of a reboot of the framework to be simpler and smaller. And I think had a similar problem as Angular one to two, but in the like I said in the in the opposite direction, we were going from big and complex to small and simpler. Uh, but that when it changes that fundamentally, it's really really confusing <laughs> because you like Sproutcore and you go take a look at Sproutcore two and it's not at all what you were expecting. And we really bifurcated the the community, uh, you know, back then. Fortunately, it was like a smaller community. It's, JavaScript is not as big business as it is today. <laughs> Okay, so I, there's another question I wanted to ask about Ember. I think 
it was certainly true in the past when people were talking about the various different frameworks. There was one of the um, scales that they would use would be opinionated, right? Mm-hmm. And they'd place frameworks on the scale of very unopinionated to very opinionated, right? Mm-hmm. And at the time, Ember all, Ember would have take would take the cake for this is the most opinionated framework, and in sort of a, a, a Rails type of uh, fashion. We've we've made all these choices for you, so you don't have to think about these choices. Um, we've got all these advantages. Would you say that Ember continues today to be uh, the most opinionated of the mainstream frameworks, or has that has that changed? And and is that a conscious choice? Has that been a natural, uh, an unconscious choice where it's led? Uh, so I, so I think I, I was just trying to run through my head, like, okay, how how opinionated is is, is Angular too? I think we're definitely one of the more opinionated frameworks for sure, if not, if not the most. And I see that as a huge boon because uh, it, it is by design and it, it is, is not just by design, but it is a core value of the Ember community. And that convention is so important to us because, and this gets back to what I was saying about us uh, as a community valuing building features for users and not building features to gratify ourselves as as programmers. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think about if I create a new app with Ember CLI, I do Ember new my app, and then I create a new app with create React app. So create React app my app. What's the next thing you do? Well, in the Ember app, you're like, okay, what's what's my next business feature? What what's the route? What are the components I'm going to start building? But on the React side, you have to think like ahead of time, well, is this, do I want Redux in this project or do I want to use MobX? Do I want to right, use right. Apollo or do I want to use Relay or do I want to use you know, any of these other options available to me? There are so many choices and decisions that you have to make to get to the full framework that you'll eventually need. And if you don't do that investment upfront, those are all things that by and large, every app is going to need eventually. So now you kind of have this half-built thing and either one of two things happens. You would decide, oh, shoot, I really need that thing. So let me try to like bolt it on and I have to rewrite a bunch of stuff. And oh, the file naming convention that we used wasn't the right one. So we need to have like a three weeks worth of meetings to decide as a team what file system layout we want. Like I guarantee everyone listening has had these meetings. I have, <laughs> right? Versus Ember's like, you know what? This is the file system. It doesn't really matter at the end of the day. A lot of smart people have put some thought into it. Here you go. And you can start working on features that deliver value to users right away. Um, My favorite now, part of that whole experience is when somebody quits over the file naming convention. Yeah, it always happens. Yeah, it's like, this so doesn't matter. You know, it so doesn't matter. And it's interesting because I think um, when you're new to development, these things seem like critically important. But then eventually it's not, you know, like this isn't my first rodeo anymore. And you kind of see the same, and you're like, you know what? There's a category of things that as the, the Ember community calls trivial decisions. These are decisions that like, they matter. You don't want to make the wrong decision, but there are a bunch of right answers and it doesn't really matter at the end of the day, just pick one. And I actually think that this is a direction the JavaScript community is, is trending in. I think uh, prettier is a really good example of this category of thing where people duped it out for, you know, how many meetings have been lost to deciding what the style guide is. And now it's so gratifying to be like, you know what, just install prettier. doesn't matter whatever prettier does by default. Like that's what we do. Right. And, and, and I think that resonates with a lot of people who have, you know, again, are going through this process, you know, maybe they're working on their second or their third big app and they're like, okay, you know, it doesn't matter. 
Um, so I think that opinionation matters. There's, there's a lot of different ways to do things, but how you choose to do it is not always as important as just making a decision. Um, but I, I think at the same time, I think one lesson that we learned from Rails was that there's a there's a difference between having an opinion that's a default and having an opinion that is assumed throughout the framework, right? Like how how rigid are those opinions? So for us, one thing that is super, super important is yes, we come out of the box with a certain set of opinions about how we think you are going to be most productive building this application. But if you disagree, you might have very good valid reasons for disagreeing. If that's the case, Ember is a big 10. We want you to be successful. If, if you have to change 10 or 20% of those opinions, go for it. So same with Prettier, right? Prettier has a default configuration, but you can change what those are. And same with Ember. You know, We ship QUnit out of the box, the testing framework, but a lot of people in the Ember community prefer using something like Mocha. You want to use Mocha? Go for it. There's an, there's an Ember add-on. You can install it. It's literally one NPM install, and you have an entire Mocha testing framework, right? And, and so we do things like design the testing utilities to be agnostic. We don't hard code them or couple them to any one approach. Uh, and, and I think broadly, that's the that's the approach we take to it. Opinions uh, loosely held, if you will. That kind of brings, oh, sorry, Joe, did you have more questions you wanted to ask? Nope. Um, I kind of wanted to get into, before we get close on time, talking about Ember at LinkedIn, especially like we're talking about all these opinions. What has enabled Ember to be so successful at LinkedIn? So I, I think it's, it's because there are tens, there, there, are, there are dozens of these kind of trivial decisions in every new app that you spin up. Um, and one, you waste a lot of time debating those as a team. And two, every team is going to decide a little bit differently. So I think one of the things that matters a lot to me is that a UI engineer here should be able to go from one app to another and be reasonably productive in a short amount of time. And if, if, every, if every product was using a completely different stack with a completely different file system layout, with a completely different dialect of, of uh, a completely different configuration of Babel uh, and a completely different loader, right? Like all of these things, portability, knowledge portability between teams would be much, much lower. And that's kind of antithetical, I think, to how we work. Um, and the other thing is, you know, we're a small team uh, in in our in my present in my infrastructure team, and we need the ability to roll out good new stuff to all of these teams in a reasonable amount of time. And if we had to say, you know, uh, you know, we're doing something in WebAssembly, we want to take advantage of uh, WebAssembly to make things faster. And then if we every single app was implemented in a completely different way, we'd have no chance. So in order for us to be a high leverage infrastructure team having those opinions baked in starts really paying dividends when you're at the scale that we are, where we have, you know, hundreds of UI engineers all across the planet. Not to say that there aren't people who chafe on those decisions. Yeah. You know, there are people who would prefer, you know, to, to structure things in a different way or name things differently or, you know, whatever. Um, and, and I'm sympathetic to that. And, and ultimately it is a team's decision what to do and how to do it. But we, we see compounding benefits from this kind of standardization as much as possible where, where it makes sense. And it's a, it's an approach I highly recommend. 
Yeah, I definitely right. can see the value in that. It's all about, you know, what, what the person wants. I know um, when I got out of my boot camp, I kind of was like faced with a choice because we did half and half Node and JavaScript and mm. half Ruby. And, you know, so a lot of people were like, you know, if you take your Ruby on Rails knowledge, you know, that's really transferable to various projects. Whereas if you go the Node route, you know, it's going to be a different story, you know, pretty much every place you go. I think that's the turn there is like slowed down uh, with Express and like the Node ecosystem. But yeah. what you're saying about Ember is, is very much the case there. So those are definitely strong points I can see. Yeah. Yeah. So oh. I want to back up. <laughs> sorry. Uh, sorry. Uh, well, um, we can cut this out if you don't want to talk about it. Um, but I, I was, I just attended Fluent and, um, a lot of people were talking about performance of the various frameworks. And, um, unfortunately Ember was not, was usually at the bottom. Yeah. Uh, is that something, first off, we can cut it if you don't want to talk about no, it. No, no, I'm, I'm happy to talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> um, so is that something that you guys have on the roadmap that you're going to dig into more? Is that just something, you know, sometimes I think performance people take it to an extreme when, you know, maybe it doesn't matter necessarily for your users. Is that just something if, if I'm going to choose Ember, um, I might need to be cognizant of who my application is being built for? Yeah, so... Um, I, I really like the framing that, that Ryan Florence used in, I think it was a React Conf talk, where uh, performance is not a goal unto itself. But as a, as a UI engineer, you need to, the question is, how many things can you say yes to? And if your, your boss or like a product designer comes to you and says, I really want to build this feature, and you can't because of the framework, that is just about the worst feeling you can have, I think, as a UI engineer. And so, especially from a library or a framework perspective, having awesome performance is critical, not because you need it 99% of the time, but because of that 1% of the time where if you didn't have it, you wouldn't be able to do what you need to do. Um, so, uh, in, ter in terms of performance, there's a lot of different axes to performance. So uh, the, the focus of the community most recently has been on load time. Like how fast is it? Yeah, to, yeah to not perceived app, right? performance, but yeah. Right, yeah. Or like runtime, like after the app is running, like how fast is the update? So like, the, you know, there's just so many different axes to this. Um, so I think Ember gets dinged pretty hard in those tests because uh, it, it is on the larger side. I think uh, it depends on what version they're testing. Ember 3, uh, you can... It comes with jQuery by default, but you can remove jQuery, which is like I think like one fifth of Ember's size. <laughs> yeah, you're down to like a, like 100 and some like 120k, which is which is bigger than something out of the box from other frameworks. But 120k is like a pretty reasonable like amount of code. Most JavaScript apps that you see are like at least four or five hundred k. So, and our, and our apps are are surprisingly small given that you start from this like hundred k uh, because of how declarative the programming model is. And 100 that be good size for like. If you want something to load on an Android phone, yeah, that can go through, that can download and go through the VM compile step in time to deliver it to the user in a reasonable amount of time. And that's to me, that's a big deal. Yeah, I mean, well, 100K, I think, is kind of pushing it. Um, you're, it depends on what markets you're targeting, but if you're targeting like lower end uh, Android phones where you're on like a 2G or 3G network. 100K just for the framework is is pretty large. 
Well, I compared to like what, I mean, look at Angular, for example. I mean, it's like the base system is more or less a megabyte. It takes several seconds for that to vm.compile. Really? On a crappy phone, yeah. Yeah, interesting. Um, yeah, I can believe that. So, and, and I mean, we've done a lot of work to, to trim the size down. Again, like Ember 3, a big part of that was stripping out deprecated features, right? Um, so that being said, um, so I, I don't think you can compare you can do an apples to, to apples comparison because Ember includes a ton of stuff out of the out of the gate that, in my experience, most apps end up using, right? So if you compare the load time of an Ember app versus a real world like React app, let's say, they end up actually being about the same size and taking about the same time to load because by the time you throw in Redux and Redux and Apollo and all these other things, it ends up being about the same. But that's not what people are measuring. Um, so that being said, uh, we we uh, announced Glimmer.js two Ember comps ago, which is kind of like a standalone component rendering library, uh, much more similar in scope to React. And I actually had a really awesome opportunity last year to work on a project here at LinkedIn, where uh, we were basically having kind of like this this a similar debate, right? Of well, is it better to use these super lightweight solutions um, to get better load time? So we rebuilt the uh, we built a prototype of the LinkedIn feed. One version was built in Preact, and the other version was built using Glimmer.js. And so Preact is like three kilobytes, and Glimmer.js just the runtime alone ends up being about twenty kilobytes. So it's so Glimmer is like quite a bit larger than Preact, but still is tiny compared the to overall what size. That's yeah, that's yeah, really small. Twenty k is like pretty pretty small. Um, and what was interesting about this is that when we ran the test, the Glimmer version ended up ever so slightly faster at loading than the Preact version. Um, and that was, to us, that was a huge breakthrough. And the reason it was a huge breakthrough is because Preact optimizes for initial load time at all costs, right? It, like three kilobytes to hit that mark Three kilobytes is almost no code. In order to hit that mark, you have to make a lot of sacrifices. There are there are quite a few, um, I'll say, bugs in the implementation where it's not API compatible with React, and they, you can't fix those bugs because doing so would require more code, right? So it's like we're just going to say that that's the trade-off just to hit this three kilobyte mark. Um, so the fact that we were not only you know competitive but actually slightly faster was was mind blowing and and really gratifying, and a big part of the the way that we achieve those results is because in Glimmer, you compile the application templates not into JavaScript like you would with, with JSX, but into this Glimmer bytecode. So we, we literally compile your templates into this binary data structure that tells us how to render your app on the browser. And so even though our library was bigger, 20K versus 3K, we made up a lot of that difference when it came to parsing templates, because now parsing these templates is just taking binary data and throwing it memory versus when you compile your JSX into JavaScript, now the browser has to spend a non-trivial amount of time parsing that JavaScript, compiling it and optimizing it in you know, V8 or whatever your JavaScript engine is. So uh, I would say, yeah, like we take performance super, super seriously. And we are, I think, really at the forefront of next generation performance. Uh, one of the things we talked about at this year's EmberConf 
was we had a kind of like proof of concept branch of the Glimmer virtual machine, the, the part of the library that actually executes that bytecode and does things like generate DOM, call into components, and so on. We had ported that core virtual machine into Rust and then compiled that Rust implementation into WebAssembly. Um, and to me, that's such an interesting area of exploration, something that we're investing in, saying, okay, you know, not just what's the local maxima, but given that we have awesome new stuff like uh, WebAssembly, shared array buffer, service worker, so many awesome new capabilities coming to the web, how do we uh, skate to where the puck is going and not where the puck is right now? That's awesome. I love that. I also love your uh, usage of the term local maxima. <laughs> Sorry, is that, that's almost as bad as isomorphic, right? <laughs> so my favorite terms. At some point, you started talking about Glimmer. And I'm not quite clear that I picked, on, picked up on when we were talking about Ember 3 and then when we switched over to talking about Glimmer. Did you introduce Glimmer? Uh, in the context of this conversation, no, I probably just jumped right into it. Okay. Do you um, want to do that? Is that important for this episode? I can clarify really briefly uh, about this. So uh, Glimmer is the rendering engine in Ember. And again, this is one of those things where we have this commitment to longevity. The web has evolved a lot. Uh, we have completely rewritten the Ember view layer three times now. Uh, the, the latest is a rendering engine we call Glimmer. It's written in TypeScript. It uses this bytecode approach where we compile your templates into the bytecode that I was describing. So if you use Ember, that is already baked in. Um, and it's part of the, it's the thing that is behind a lot of the performance improvements we've seen over the last year, like dramatic performance improvements. Uh, because Ember comes with a lot of functionality, routing, data library, dependency injection, all this sort of stuff. Uh, for many people who don't need that, we said, you know, instead of making people buy into that full Ember experience, let's create a library called Glimmer.js that's just the component layer. So it's a thin wrapper around the rendering engine that was already in Ember. So we extracted it, made it its own thing that people can play around with. So the only caveat about Glimmer.js is that uh, it is pre 1.0. So Ember is legendary for its compatibility and its migrations. Glimmer is kind of our our experimental lab for us to try out, you know, crazy new experiments with like WebAssembly and decorators and TypeScript and all these things and not have to worry, not be as constrained as much by, by backwards compatibility. Um, but as we do awesome new experiments and they pan out, we always take the work that's happening in Glimmer.js and we upstream it to, to Ember. Uh, a good example of that is we have this new component API, super modern in, that we kind of prototyped in Glimmer and now the latest versions of Ember and the 3X series, you can use this, this same component API that feels really, really nice. And to be honest, it's very similar to React. <laughs> All right. So I just want to backtrack a little bit and ask a couple of quick questions. If I'm a big fan of TypeScript, can I use that in Ember? Yes. Ooh, yeah, this is my question. <laughs> we, are, we are huge TypeScript fans. All of Glimmer, the, the virtual machine, Glimmer.js is all written in TypeScript. We're porting more and more of the Ember internals over to TypeScript, and it's super easy. There's a there's a uh, an Ember add-on called Ember CLI TypeScript. You install that in your Ember app, and boom, you're good to go. Hmm. So you guys are using TypeScript? Yep. Ember. Okay, cool. I love it. Not everything is internally is moved to TypeScript yet, but more and more by the day. 
Cool. Nice. What about uh, something like you mentioned QUnit? So Jest is getting really popular in the testing world. Is Jest got? Does it have support yet with Ember? Uh, that's a good question. I I'm not sure. I think hypothetically, there's no reason why you couldn't integrate it into Ember CLI as an add-on. I don't know of anyone using it. Um, I know I know a lot of people who use it and love it. So uh, I hope someone listening who is a Jest and Ember fan makes this happen. Cool. All right. Well, those are my two big questions. I'm all out. Does AJ have something? No, I don't have anything. Tom, you got stuff you want to add that we didn't talk about? Oh, I mean, I could talk your ear off for you. <laughs> Do it! If only I didn't have to actually work. Yeah, it's the pits. <laughs> right. Well, let's go ahead and move on to uh, picks then. Deploy more, pay less with DigitalOcean the simplest all-in-one cloud computing platform for developers. Scale and run cloud applications faster and more efficiently with effortless administration tools to robust compute, flexible configurations, networking services, real-time alerts, and rapid provisioning while enjoying industry-leading price-to-performance with a flat pricing structure across all global data center regions at any usage volume. Spend more time building better web apps and less time worrying about managing infrastructure with DigitalOcean. Build your next app on DigitalOcean. Get started with a free $100 credit at do.co slash jabber. Amy, are you ready to start us off? Sure, I have at least one. I was thinking of maybe doing two, but I might only have one for today. Um, so somebody, uh, I wish I knew who shared this with me, but somebody, or just a bunch of the people, the speakers were talking one night at Fluent, and we were talking about meetings, popular topic for programmers. They hate meetings. Uh, so somebody pointed me to this article that I will share in our show notes, but it basically talks about uh, manager schedules versus maker schedules. It's a really old mm. post, it looks like. Uh, yep. And like the cost of the manager schedule on the maker schedule, like just of it is uh, manager schedule, they're used to like having to bounce around, do a lot of meetings, uh, shift contests, that's just like part of their job. Uh, but a maker schedule needs to be focused for a long period of time. So um, I think this would be really good if you are a maker or a manager to read so that you understand the other person's perspective. And that'll be it for me. I read that article recently, a great article or a, a derivative of it. Yeah, it's pretty good. Um, okay, AJ, how about you? Yeah, I'm going to pick James Vike. He's the spam spammers guy. Um, he has just a ton of super funny um, like TED Talks and YouTube videos and whatnot where he takes the adventurous approach of when you get an email that says, we have a priceless diamond ready for to submit your bank account only needed $4,000 million. Replying and saying, excellent. Let's go underway immediately for need to access now. And uh, just continuing that conversation and seeing where it goes. And um, I just think that his approach to those emails and phone calls and sorts of things is hilarious. And I, I actually get calls all the time and, and he inspires me sometimes to say funny things instead of just hanging up like, this, today, I got a call from someone in Canada, supposedly in Canada, but had a very non-Canadian accent, talking to me something about web design. And so I said, 
oh, how's the weather in Canada today? Oh, good. But uh, I am here to help you with web design. I said, oh, well, I only let Americans do web design, not Canadians. Unfortunately, they hung up on me. <laughs> but like, this is kind of like fun humor, like playing with the people that annoy you. <laughs> so that's what I pick. Awesome. All right, uh, I'll go next. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the uh, Framework Summit, which is coming up August 2nd and 3rd, uh, a conference de dedicated to all front-end frameworks, Ember, Angular, React, all the usual suspects. And uh, this is one of the places that we are announcing this, but a really awesome development will be happening at the Framework Summit the day before. We're going to have each of the teams from the various frameworks all in the same room having their own basically conference where they are the attendees talking to each other, learning from each other about how to do better at the various aspects that affect everybody, such as keeping uh, uh, diverse contributions, handling contributions for open source, how to keep documentation uh, up to date and do a good job with documentation and have all these teams in the same room learning from each other, which to me is like sort of a culmination of what the Framework Summit is really all about, which is sharing knowledge uh, about everything about tech in general. So I'm super excited for the Framework Summit and for this uh, Framework Creator Summit that will be going on just the day before. We hopefully will be publishing notes from that meeting as well. And then my other pick is going to be, I have done a fair amount of Overwatch playing in the past, although recently... I've had to uninstall it just so I could get some work done. <laughs> but I, I still do. Rocket League. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I recently, um, I, or I still do watch videos uh, every so often on YouTube about Overwatch. And I found this great streamer named Jane, J-A-Y-N-E, uh, who does coaching and analysis. And he's, he just breaks down games and he does a really good job explaining them. Very nice guy. So I'll pick him uh, as, as well for my second pick. Tom, how about you? All right, I got, I got three. Here, they'll be real quick. Uh, first one, uh, these are all New York City-focused, so I hope you have at least one listener in New York City. Uh, New York City, LinkedIn is doing a JavaScript tech talk. It is on July 19th in the Empire State Building in our beautiful engineering offices. Uh, it'll, we'll be talking about how uh, a number of topics, but the theme is what it takes to use JavaScript at the scale of, of LinkedIn. So I hope people attend, it's free to attend. Uh, you can RSVP on our meetup page. Uh, second thing is uh, if you're looking for ties, I'm going to recommend the tie I'm wearing is uh, from Drake's. This is a beautiful hand knit tie, hand roll tie. Uh, you can get these, now the, the New York store is where it's at. Uh, they're based in England, but you can order these online. So if you wanna dapper it up, just look as awesome as I do this is probably the best tie you will ever own. Uh, and the last pick is uh, if you're looking for suits, go see my girl, Melissa Watson Ellis at Hall Madden. They will get you set up. She has such an expert eye. She'll take all your measurements, get you a suit, pretty affordable for what you're getting, very high quality. You will never look better than you do in one of the suits from Melissa. Hit her up. And they unfortunately do not have any kind of referral program. So this is just out of the goodness of my heart. <laughs> that, that's how good I look. I'm just going to say, I think like all men should start wearing suits. There should be like a month where all programmers have to do this. So that Absolutely. They, they all can relate to what it's like for women. <laughs> I'm in. Let's start the revolution. 
Um, before we let everybody go, actually, there's one more thing I wanted to mention. Kind of a kind of a pick. So this is almost almost a pick. I'm jumping back in for with one more pick. Something happened last week that was pretty noteworthy. The View project on GitHub surpassed the React project for number of stars. But what was far more noteworthy and interesting about this is that the React team sent a cake to Evan Yu to congratulate him. There's a there's a tweet about it, and I just think that right there is is class, and that right there is that's community and uh, inclusivity right there is celebrating other successes. So my hats off to the React team for providing that kind of awesome example to the rest of us. Evan's such an awesome guy too. No, no one deserves success more than than Evan. He's such a <laughs> such an awesome guy. He's he's sort of my neighbor. He's a, he's across the Hudson in New Jersey. <laughs> uh. He's also one of like twenty people that make enough on Patreon to actually support what they do off of. Right. Yeah. It's crazy. Well, he used to work at Meteor. All right. All right. With that, we'll wrap it up. Thanks, everybody. Again, thanks so much, Tom, for coming on the show. It was great to talk to you. Pleasure, guys. Thank you for having me. Thanks to all the listeners for tuning in every week, and we will see everybody next week. Bye. Adios. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.